0: Intentional optimism is not something that you can just give mental assent to. It is an active pursuit, it is a very real growth process. So, intentional optimism and the six tenets are now my own personal growth plan. And these days, they don't really call it that anymore. Uh, I think they call it third culture kids. But I was raised in Seoul, Korea. My parents went there as missionaries in 1974. And so I was raised in a missionary community with lots of expatriates from all over the world. The school that I went to was an international baccalaureate school. And I went to school with kids from 65 different countries. And not quite that many languages spoken in the hall, but a lot. (laughs) Um, and so that gave me a really different worldview for most people. It gave me a global worldview. And when you're young, you may not always appreciate the value of that.
1: <laughs> most definitely. I, I grew up in a military family, so, and was born overseas, lived there twice. So I totally get what you're saying, you know?
0: Cool. Um, We did a lot with the military. My mother served the Red Cross and she was the director of all volunteers for Asia. So she was a GS-13, but unpaid. So she did uh, high quality, high value work with a lot of VIPs. And a lot of our friends were military. Some of our best friends were Air Force and Army. So we did a lot with the military community.
1: That's great. So how did that... um being in that environment how did it affect you when you were younger and how has it affected you now uh, as an adult in in that environment
0: you know i mentioned a little while ago that i didn't really appreciate what it meant to be able to grow up overseas and as a grown woman i look back and i say wow i was blessed i traveled all over the world i went to hawaii back and forth several times um so that was like the kind of the norm for me. Um, and I grew up wearing like Evan Pacone and Liz Claiborne silk dresses and had no idea that they didn't mm-hmm. normally only cost $10. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that was a rude awakening coming back yeah, to college. exactly. But um, I didn't understand it at the time. And I also was one of those people who really struggled with fitting in. I was an overweight child in an expatriate culture and a Korean culture. that There just wasn't a lot of obesity. And I also was loud and different. I have opinions and I don't mind talking. And so struggling to fit in was very difficult for me. And it led to a lot of different issues, but I've realized in the last probably four years that part of my struggle to fit in also meant that I kind of turned my back on a lot of my past. And I've recently enjoyed bringing up all the memories again and remembering all the beautiful th- aspects about growing up in Asia and specifically in, Cor- in South Korea. And I have, you have to say that because I don't think people understand. Of course. <laughs>
1: yeah. No, it's two um, different Koreas. Uh, yes. <laughs>
0: Very different and but recently I've really come to embrace the idea that I turned my back on some of those things things and walked away from that to be more like the people I was around. And as I embrace being different, as I am, you know, most people look at me and go, how different are you? Um, But it's all what's in our head, you know? So as I embrace being different and being unique and being an unconventional leader and being an intentional optimist, I embrace all of those memories now. And I embrace all the beauty that comes with the diversity of all those experiences.
1: Tell me a little bit about you mentioned about a missionary family. What do you think are some thoughts or ideas people, or misconceptions people may have about that lifestyle? <laughs>
0: we had we had all kinds of jokes as kids, mm-hmm. um, but part of that is just because of education. Um, it, it's these days too. Missionary families a lot of times are sent to places where. Politically, it may not be expedient for everyone to know that they are there. So it's not highly advertised. But when I grew up, it was very normal for people to know exactly where we were and what we were doing. But Korea, even in the, and I'm dating myself, in the 70, I already said 74, but in the 70s mm-hmm. and 80s, Korea was still an emerging society. Now it's this amazing, technologically advanced you know, one of the best on the coronavirus situation, you know. Um, But back then it it wasn't quite. And people didn't know that a missionary wasn't somebody who went to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa. And we had people asking us if we lived in grass huts and we had people asking us um, if the Korean War was over. And, you know, we discovered that there was, even as a child, I discovered that there was a lack of global awareness in the United States, and it it continues. <laughs> um, but I think part of that is being, you know, American and being part of a country that is kind of a globally dominating type power. Um, but as far as missionary communities are concerned, I think that... Um, many of the things that people automatically assume that they don't have a lot of money or that they give up a lot. And those things are all true. And there are things that we gave up, like being near family and being uh, having American food or being able to just speak the language of my native language all the time. Um, Those are the things we give up, but the things that we gained that people may think we gave up we we didn't really lose I still was in an expatriate community where um we had people from all over the United States and Europe and and Africa um, I mean I went to school with kids from um that whose parents were ambassadors from different countries and because it was a great school so yeah. my education was better I was not homeschooled we did have in Korea there is and there are several across the world but there's boarding schools that we could have gone to, but there's, there's things that are an automatic assumption that are just kind of not true. It might depend on the the type of situation that they're in.
1: Yeah. You know, I asked, because I think there is, sometimes when you hear the word missionary or, you know, it brings up different ideas of what people think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly I think in maybe today, today's society where, um, you know, it feels like there's um, a less of an emphasis on those things um, and and more of a, a lack of understanding about mm-hmm. that. So I wanted to kind of go and understand that a little bit more from the listener's point of view. They'd be like, what is that actually? You know, like...
0: Well, you mean like, what does a missionary do or what is their yeah. purpose or why do they go? Yeah, I
1: know, but I think, I don't know, if my <laughs> listeners understand that. I grew up a lot, around a lot of missionaries and in the military family, actually, there were a lot of, um, right. around a lot of Mormons, actually, who mm-hmm. were on missions and missionaries. And so mm-hmm. I, I had a lot of friends who like grew up and they were doing that, but I'm okay. not sure that is so well understood by a lot of people, you know?
0: Okay. Well, I'll give you, uh, a. this is not something I normally give a primer on, so I may not be really good at it, but I'll give you as best I can a a primer. Um, So I'm I'm Southern Baptist and my parents were Southern Baptist missionaries and then ended up coming back to Richmond, Virginia to the home office and both of them retired from there doing different types of work in the home office. And Southern Baptists have some of the I think the largest one of the largest sending agencies in the world I think that we have I don't know exactly because I haven't paid attention lately but I think it's upwards of 4 or 5000 missionaries.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: The goal of a Southern Baptist missionary could be different. When I was on the field we had my dad was what we called a field evangelist. So he would and and he was a student evangelist for a while. So he would go into the towns and help local churches hold revivals or youth group things, you know, for when he was doing student work. Um, He helped plant churches. And those are the kind of normal things you think of as a missionary. Um, For the, I'm not a Mormon. So for the Mormons, though, my understanding is that they, part of The way they grow and do well as a Mormon is to do a two to three year mission trip when they're young, and and they go out and they share about Mormonism. So in that respect, it's a little similar. Um, But the missionaries that we send um, as Southern Baptists go and stay on the field; they live in the community. Many of them um, are we learn to speak the language. Like in Korea, you go and 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 you would take two to two and a half, maybe three years of intense language study because Korean is what is, I I was always told the Uh third hardest language for English speaking people to learn how to speak. It is a monotone. Um, and so, well, not truly, it's, it's not tonal. Like Chinese is very tonal. Korean is not. And, um, so English speaking people had a hard time with it, but, um, you do that. And it, it got to the place where my dad could preach in Korean. My mother taught, English classes with Bible study, and um, again, she also worked Red Cross, but she did other things with our mission. Um, but there were there are lots of sending agencies that are not big; they're individual, they're local. They're each each missionary is supported, and they have individualized support. So people pledge support to them. In the Southern Baptist Convention, we have the Cooperative Program, where all autonomous Southern Baptist churches give money towards that. And, um, so a part of the budget for the international mission board is supplied by regular giving. And then there's an offering in the, at Christmas time that is specifically for that. So our missionaries are supported on the field with a place to live and a car to drive and a salary and a retirement program and that kind of thing. So in that respect, it's, it's kind of like a job, right? It's yeah. an international job. Um, and they may go to be, like I said, an, an evangelist or some of them go in. We I grew up with music missionaries. Specifically, they were there to Train Koreans on how to do like music ministry, and um, oh, that's so, interesting. Yeah, we had, and we have medical missionaries, and that's the other area that you hear a lot about. Yeah, is medical missionaries. We had um, hospital hospital down there um, in in Pusan, which is the southernmost city, and so we had doc- we have doctors on the field that work in specific areas, and they train, and and we have. Uh, excuse me, religious education like seminaries. We have a seminary in Korea, a seminary in Kenya, a seminary in Switzerland, and so they do s- educational work with training pastors to be able to go and preach. So
1: it's a lot. <laughs> that was well said. Honestly, oh. I don't think you could say much better than what you just said. <laughs> I uh,
0: hope nobody. I hope nobody from the International Mission Board is listening.
1: Oh, um, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> It was probably a good representation of it, I would imagine so. I I
0: hope so. (laughs) Pretty thorough. Well, you know, when you grow up coming home, we would go for two or three to four years and stay and then come home on what we call a furlough, just like the military does. And on furlough, my dad would go around to churches and give slideshows. And that's another thing is that missionaries always did slideshows growing up. I don't think they do that anymore. They might, but part of that is I went and listened and I heard that over and over and over. (laughs) I could probably quote to you different things from the slideshows from when I was a kid, just because that's, I was, you hear it enough times. It's just the way we learn. Right. So anyway.
1: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, it was great. I I think it was, honestly, I I know so many people and I don't think they know anything about this. And so it's just a good reference point for somebody. Mm -hmm. If they were to be exposed to it, be like, Hey, Here's a pretty good explanation about it here. I,
0: I hope so. I think there's, you know?
1: I'm
0: I'm a little out of the loop because um, my parents have both retired from the International Mission Board, um, but I'm kind of a product of that life. I, my dad was a pastor before I was born. He was a pastor um, all the way up until that we went on the field, and then they came back and worked for the International Mission Board. I met my husband at a Southern Baptist seminary. Mm-hmm. I have almost a master's of divinity and um oh, nice. and I'm a I'm a pastor's wife and a Sunday school teacher. So there it, you I'm go. a little bit I'm a little <laughs> bit steeped in it.
1: <laughs> How has that been? I'm I'm curious, like um and you know it's I think again it, it leads into another discussion about maybe people's perceptions of pastors kids or pastor spouse and things what are what do you think on moving into that area is there any surprising things or misconceptions you think people would be interested to know about that
0: <clears throat> we're all perfect
1: i knew it i just <laughs> <struggled>. <laughs> <laughs> um you,
0: you know i i struggle sometimes When I share some of the stories of being a pastor's wife, because it's very hard, Um, I have been a pastor's wife. We've been married almost 26 years. In May, it'll be 26 years. And he was a youth minister before I met him. Mm -hmm. And it's hard sometimes when you're in ministry to make friends and to have close friends because you know things about people and you can't show favorites. And it's not like being in a company It's, it's not like you're the CEO of a company and you can't have the friends. It's, I mean, there's a way in which that is similar, but somehow when it's about spiritual things and in church, it's much more difficult to do that. So there have been aspects to it that have been a real struggle, but I have from day one (laughs) said, I am not your typical pastor's wife. I don't play the piano. (laughs) I don't. Um, well, and I mean, typical in the sense that old fashioned, um, I we're see. not homeschoolers. I, I like, I don't play the piano. Uh, I do teach Sunday school, but part of that's just because I have a passion for helping other people grow and we grow physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. I mean, that's, that's what a coach is, right? So, yeah. um, so for me, helping other women grow um, in church means that I teach and I mentor, um, but I don't do that because I'm the pastor's wife. I do that because I have a passion and I believe that that's how I'm equipped and I'm, that's where my strengths are. Um, I think that there are misconceptions of pastors' homes either being really, really perfect, or really, <laughs> really, or really, really awful. You know, you hear like a pastor's kid is the worst kid in the church, and mm. I pray mine's not.
1: <laughs> You're like, oh not. <laughs> um,
0: But I think that in this day and age, we're all learning the beauty and the ability to be as transparent as possible and as authentic as possible, recognizing and understanding. If if we don't recognize and understand our own weaknesses and our own, um, you know, in that world, you call them sins. And if you don't understand our own challenges and, and if you're not honest about them, then that's when people start using the word hypocrisy, you know, and mm. we can't lead others if we're not willing to lead ourselves. And that's a leadership principle and it's a spiritual principle.
1: Most um, definitely.
0: So if, if we're willing to say, all right, I need to get up every morning and in order for my spiritual health, I need to be in my Bible every morning and I need to have a conversation with my maker, then, um, then I can turn around and share what I've learned. Before I do that, I, I need to be really careful because I'm probably not focused where I need to be. Right. Because I'm human, and I want to focus on me all the time, right? So,
1: right. I mean, this is going somewhere that I, I have several things to ask. <laughs> I mean, I, oh, this is what always <laughs> happens. Oh, what's mm-hmm. what uh, reason why I'm asking too? Uh, is um, one of the things I, I, I've grown up in um, a religious household, very spiritual, um, more non-denominational as we grew up in the military mm-hmm. and it was over. But um sure. but one of the things I loved is as I became an adult and I was trying to find my way and how I wanted to be fed spiritually. And you talk about, you know, pastors, is I wanted a pastor who I just felt like was very flawed and mm-hmm. was very just a normal person who I felt was excellent at just being a regular person very relatable mm-hmm. and uh so i've had a pastor for 17 years at central christian church uh, it's in las vegas based and uh i'm in washington state but i feel like i always connect to his uh his faults mm. all the time you know and so i think that's why i think i grew up in a, in a way where like the pastor seemed perfect or oh. that you know that whole thing They're like the pastor could do no wrong and it was just very suit-driven, very well-spoken, no-mistake person. And I never liked that. I never liked that. I thought it didn't feel real to me. Mm-hmm. And so um, just, I know that's how I felt growing up, but I also know a lot of people have felt the same way. So I am I was just curious from your point of view what that's like, especially being in your position with that. <laughs> and, you know, it's a very different because I, I knew – um, in one of the churches I was a part of, I I was very close with the pastor's family and I'd go and eat dinner there. And I thought they're very nice people, but I also thought this is a little more like what I grew up kind of like and know, very nice, but it was like, okay, don't try to be perfect, <laughs> you know, like just be regular, please. <laughs> you know.
0: Well, you know, leave it to beaver is is a television yeah. show. That's yes. all it is. Yeah. And um we have seen many pastors fall. Very far because they've not been willing to admit their flaws. And I will say, if there's one flaw in our religious academic setting, it's that they don't prepare you to do just that, to admit where you're wrong. And, you know, granted, we we were in seminary a long time ago. My husband graduated in 90. Seven, I think. And um, we don't, we got a good education, a very good religious education, um, Greek and Hebrew and all that stuff, you know. Um, b- but both of us felt walking into a church in Baltimore that we were not prepared. And it's so easy to want to have the answers. And this is where I'm, I could get myself in real trouble in the evangelical community because I think that we want to have the answers. It is a natural tendency for us to want. I think it comes from a place of desiring to help. And it comes from a place of a, um, a willingness to serve. But when we always have an answer and we don't say, I don't know, and we always think that We're right because we get to the place where we think we always have to have an answer. Then that's just the road we can't. That's a road that will go nowhere. And I learned many years ago that I I'm never going to be always right, and it's always okay to not have an answer. And when I sat down, we were in Baltimore, um, a church for eleven years there in Baltimore County, and I want to say the first. Two or three Sundays, this young woman comes up and sits down with me after the service and says, "I have this issue, this problem, and she wanted to talk to me about it." And I was, I don't know, twenty-eight, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I looked at her and I said, "Why? Oh, wow, this is a big deal. Why are you asking me? Why?" You know, and she said, "Because you're my pastor's wife." And I thought, "Oh yeah, totally," and not I am not prepared for this. <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. How fast can I get out? <laughs> and because that's a responsibility that a 28-year-old woman can't take on, right? There's there is no wisdom that you gain in 28 years that you there's no wisdom of a 50-year-old that you can get in 28 years. You just can't get it. And so in order to be able to say I don't know but let's find the answer or let's, let's go figure out the best place for you to get help. Right. That's how we create really good community. That's how we create really good relationships. And I was raised with that perfect suit Sunday. And I, you know, the roast is always ready at one o'clock when you walk in the door Mm -hmm. and, you know, the timer is set and everything is perfect. I was you know we're from this my family's from southeast texas right i, I yeah. joked about that you might my, my name is andrea yeah, it's just um so i understand that and i understand the flip side um when we were in korea one of the reasons we taught people english is because they wanted to learn and there's this fine line that you walk between having something different and unique to offer people and putting up a plastic front. And I think that's the really hard place to be. That's the really difficult road because if you have something different to offer, that's great. But you don't want to go so far different that you're not offering them real hope and you know, real spiritual nourishment. But you also don't want to offer them something so different that is um, in the other direction is um, unattainable. I think that's the yeah. word I'd like to use, right? Because nobody's perfect. There's not a family alive that doesn't fight with their kids. They're, oh, I mean, yeah. we do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like hashtag bad mommy moment. And it's just, it's going to happen. And we just have to acknowledge that. And that just goes to the, sorry, now I'm going to preach a little bit, but that just goes to the, please, basics <laughs> of what the Christian faith is, is that we are all born, we are all sinners, right? I mean, and I, We're all enough, right? We're all, don't get me wrong there. Um, But I on my own can't be perfect. I on my own can't attain it. That's why I need Jesus, right? And if I don't, if I think I don't need Jesus, then what am I messing with this for, right? Like the Apostle Paul said, we're either, if our faith is in vain, then we're to be pitied. So I need to be willing to say, to my son, to my husband, whew, I was wrong, and then I need to like let God work on me. He He justified me. He saved me from the beginning, and then now every day is like making me more like Him. And that the big spiritual word is sanctification. It's like becoming more like Christ. So um, there we go. I'm teaching Sunday school.
1: <laughs> you didn't think this was going to happen when you came on here today, did you? <laughs> no,
0: I had no idea that this That's is the fun though.
1: That's the beauty yeah. of it. I just, you know, for me is, you know, Andrea's. I don't like to shy away from stuff. Like, you know, you have, you'll go on some podcasts or shows and you get in the topic of religion and people get so worked up about it or they don't want to talk about it. And I, I just, I don't think it's a big deal to like talk about things. I'm like, we should, you should know more about stuff instead of trying to avoid it. Re- regardless of the topic, whether it's controversial or difficult. It's important to hear it, you know.
0: Well, and you provide a, 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 this is a buzzword, you know, you provide a safe place to have that conversation. Yeah. And when there's, when you know that you're just, when you're curious, when you're honestly curious, um, then it's a completely different conversation. And I, I have to tell you, my, I mentioned earlier, my my close friends are not Christians. Yeah. I I have providentially been provided with ladies in my life who love and support me and love that I am a believer and love that that's what comes out of my mouth and if you're on my personal Facebook page, that's what's up there every single day I do she reads truth every day and so I post their little you know Instagram Bible verse and um, so they know that about me and for me to not live that authentically around my friends would be, they would be like, that's. they said, that's not you, right? (laughs) To not live that. And so there are things that we have to be kind and gentle and careful. And we have to remember that each person that we're talking to got to that opinion or got to that belief in some way. Maybe it's, it's a product of their upbringing. Maybe it's their demographic, whatever. But we- If we're open and we're honest and we're curious, and this goes into intentional optimism, it's like being present Mm -hmm. is being open and curious and generous. And when we do that, then we invite people into our circle with open arms instead of, you know, clenched fists. And right now, I think our country needs a whole lot more of that. A (laughs) whole lot of intentional optimism. (laughs) Well, even if it's just the open arms part and, you know... I was literally demonstrating this for my husband the other day up in our, our bedroom. I said, when you open your arms, you and you open your hands, you're not holding any weapons, you're not, you have no defenses. You're literally opening yourself up to say, I'm I'm willing to be hurt in this conversation because it means that much to me. And if we're willing to do that with other people, then it creates a place where they say they're more willing. Now they may not be, but it gives them the opportunity to respond the same way, to say, I'm willing to have an open conversation with my arms open. You know, this is, when we do that, you're, aren't you like a personal trainer? Um, I am. Yeah, yeah, right? So you leave your torso completely unprotected, right? This is your vital organs (laughs) physically. So when we look at that as a physical picture and we open ourselves up like that, it is a message to the other person that I'm willing to be vulnerable. And it doesn't have to be sappy. It doesn't have to be woo-woo. It's just, I'm willing to just say, hey, I don't know everything. I'm willing to listen to you. Let's talk.
1: That's a hard message today. I mean, we, we, I mean, <laughs> we I need come. the message, but man, that's a hard <laughs> message for a lot of people. It is. With the polarization of things in this country. But how did you come to intentional optimism? Um, it seems like some level of a spiritual outgrowth, but tell me a little bit about the story of that.
0: Um, Let's see. It's. I it started off as what I thought was going to be just a personal philosophy, and my mother was this amazing woman. If you go to my website, you'll read a little bit of her story. But she, we lost her four years ago yesterday. No, the ninth um, of February to uh, breast cancer, and before that, she had lupus. But she was a fighter, and right. she she fought hard and to the very end. And I shared a minute ago that I always wanted to fit in. And it's really easy for us to talk about being a square peg in a round hole. And for the longest time, I said, everybody else is trying to put this square peg in a round hole because I'm different. I have black sheet pictures in my house, okay? Right. And I, I wasn't a bad kid. I just was different. And I think differently and I... If you're into Enneagram, I'm a seven. If you're um, Myers-Briggs, I'm an ENFP. I'm the entertainer. And that's not practical. (laughs) It's just not. Yeah. And so I was – because I really wanted to fit in, community is like my top values are authenticity, community, and freedom. And I didn't fully understand that community was a value of mine until I was – have as I work with clients, I keep telling them whatever makes you really angry or whatever's your biggest pain point, that's probably, if you flip that on its head, that's probably one of your highest values. And when I realized in talking with my clients, oh, it's not just freedom that I'm looking for, it's community. I realized, oh, the reason I wanted so desperately all my life to fit in is because I just want community. And it wasn't okay for me to be different. And so I took and made myself a little bit of a victim, um, but finally, by the time I turned fifty, and my mother left um, to be with the Lord, um, I, I said, I, "I can't. I can't just keep going the way I'm going. I have a good career in university medical centers. Um, I'm I'm growing, and I'm I, I'm supervising people. By all accounts, I'm fairly successful. You know, middle management, but." I said, this, this is not where I need to be. And so I started doing what my dad would call belly button staring and really looking inside. I started a personal growth journey back when I was, I turned 21 in a 12 week program for bulimia and depression, which tells you how long I've been dealing with, I don't fit in issues. Um, but I started with my personal growth tools way back then. So almost a 30-year journey to get me to a place to say, wait a minute, for for real, I need to figure this out. And my dad um, gave to my mom when she retired from the International Mission Board, this beautiful calligraphy picture of Proverbs chapter 31, verses 10 through 31. And if you're not familiar with that passage, it's what a lot of times we refer to as the virtuous woman or the virtuous wife. And it's not King Solomon, but it's King Lemuel's mom says to him, it's time to find you a wife and let me tell you what a really good one would look like. And so it's this picture of a full life cycle of, of an amazing woman. And I thought, why would he give that to her? It's this beautiful Hebrew calligraphy. This, um, I think a rabbi in Jerusalem did it or something. And, um, as we were packing up his stuff to move out, I just really was captivated by it all over again. And, you know, I told you, I'm in my Bible every day. So I went back to look at Proverbs 31 and I realized I had a skewed picture of her, just like people have maybe a skewed picture of pastor's families or missionary families. In my mind, she was a homeschooler and she canned her own vegetables, which we did do that in Korea. And she made her own clothes and, you know, she was just this perfect little demure wife. But when I read it over, I realized she's a manufacturer. She's a real estate mogul. She's a shipping magnet. She purchases land, builds a vineyard, sells the wine, then sells the land, takes her profits and reinvests. This woman is a businesswoman. She clothes her family in purple. She, um, her husband is well known because of her good name. She's a philanthropist, which means she's got money. And I said, all right, then. Of all the things that I'm seeing here, and all the personal growth stuff that I'm going through, I, I need to, I, I need to figure out what I need to stand for and how I need to live. And I just literally notes after notes after notes, probably 20 pages worth of stuff, started narrowing it down to six main things. And when I realized these six main things were encompassed, not there, but in most personal growth systems, I thought, this is what I need to live. And one of the aspects that my mother had to her that um, we, we desperately miss is that she was a little bit like a bottle of champagne. When she would walk in a room, you know, it was like the cork would, and bubbles would go everywhere.
1: Yeah,
0: kind of like Norm, right? It, when you walked in, yeah. from cheap, Cheers. like, Norm. Yeah, yeah. Um, everybody loved Judy, and I always saw myself as I didn't, I didn't want to be her clone because I'm not, I'm different. Um, but I, when she was gone, I realized, but that's the aspect of her personality that I am most like. Not that everybody likes me, but that I just have that, we used to call it sanguineness, right? It's this happiness, this, I have to look at the, the good side and I have to move forward. And so I went looking for words to use and I wanted to use becoming sanguine. And my best friend tried, said, nobody knows what that means, Amy. Have <laughs> like <more> no.
1: Than-
0: <laughs> no, don't use that one. So um, in order to use the word optimism, I had to put intentional with it and part, partly because Intentional optimism is not something that you can just give mental assent to. It is an active pursuit. It is a very real growth process. So intentional optimism and the six tenets are now my own personal growth plan. I then became a John Maxwell team certified speaker, trainer, and coach and it wasn't until recently that I started calling them my personal growth plan because they were principles for a long time. And he says, "What's your personal growth plan? Do You have one?" I'm like, "Yeah, I guess I'm just going to grow." And then I realized I do. I didn't realize I wasn't calling it a personal growth plan. So I kind of emerged from a crucible of sorts, holding a gem of intentional optimism. That's what I like to call it.
1: Holding, I get this picture of you holding the gem of <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Emer- this kind of strong emergence of that, yeah. how do you think that has affected your life and those around you uh, with this kind of this way of being?
0: Um, if For anyone who has come up with their own, I'm just going to call it intellectual property, there is a apprehension that comes with sharing it. <laughs> And, um, I don't know, maybe it's from my own personal background, but for probably two or three years, well, maybe two years, cause I've gotten really bold over the last two, but for the first couple of years, was like, yeah, this thing, it's called intentional optimism, you know, and it's not Pollyanna, but it has now, um, created a Facebook group of a global group of women who are learning to be committed to living these principles and these personal growth, this personal growth plan. And it's now, I, I I have interviews with people and they say, well, are you going to write a book? I'm like, well, maybe I am going to write a book. And it affects my husband even, um, who, you know, he's a pastor and he's always focused on growth and he agrees with me and he thinks this is wonderful. And he listens to my podcast, which is awesome. But Recently, he even said, I really, I he's, he says, I really see what you're talking about here. Because um, one of the things I don't care for is constantly talking about the things that are wrong without presenting some kind of solution. And with my son, who is, like I said, he's 12. Um, he's adopted. That's another story. Um, but we learned by the time he was five, that he has ADHD. And for parents who have never parented an ADHD child, that's a whole new learning curve. And we learned very quickly that one of the best things to do with ADHD kids is to use what we call positive opposites. And I think that was a little bit of what fueled me, but it really resonated to my core. And when he was young, instead of saying stop running, we would say walking feet Um, because that would tell him what to do So for me in intentional optimism, I said, this is what we do. We walk toward things. We stand for things. We move in a forward direction. We don't walk in circles. We are intentional. We have a plan. We have a purpose. We have, I can, I haven't even gone through the six tenets, but I think that in my personal relationships, I try to live those more. Like like I said, it's my own personal growth plan. So I find myself being held accountable and, which is very good uh, because if I, again, don't live them, then they don't mean anything, right?
1: Most definitely. Um, You know, the adoption thing is interesting. My daughter is adopted as well. Mm. And uh, it's a true miracle. I really feel like it's an incredible, incredible experience. Tell me a little bit about um, your experience with that.
0: We did a private adoption. Uh, We discovered, so (laughs) I have a lot of stories, but um, I also am a gastric bypass patient. And one of the reasons I did that was because I was morbidly obese for a very long time. And my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer and we were having infertility issues. And I said, I have to get this under control. So I did. And I'm March 31st. I'm 16 years out and almost 200 pounds down. So I'm a success story. Um, But I was hopeful that once I lost weight, that the fertility issues would go away. And they did not. And I found out that I was in early menopause and that I had a 13% chance of a live birth using in vitro fertilization. And when someone sits in a white coat across a desk from you and says that, it feels very stark and very clinical. Um, but I was raised with friends who were adopted. It was normal to me. My The missionary families would work with Holt Adoption Agency, which is an international adoption agency, housing children or babies as they were waiting to go to the States. And then they would fly back accompanying these children and dropped them off in LA with Holt representatives there. So adoption was kind of part of my, a little bit of the fabric of my life. And I remember leaving, I don't know if it was leaving the doctor's office by the time we got to the car or sitting in our backyard, but I just, literally, I just looked at my husband and I said, yeah, adoption's 100%. (laughs) So, you know, I don't know why I would worry about anything else. And we looked at different options. We looked at – we weighed them all, whether or not we wanted to go international or domestic or private or agency. And we decided to do private. And it turns out that our son Nathan was born – we were in Baltimore County in Essex. And he was born one little town subdivision or sub, suburb over in, in – he was born in virginia but at the time yeah. he was in dendock and um he was being babysat by friends a, a ladies a lady in my sunday school class her her ne- niece was babysitting him and um so we we did that ourselves i i will say private adoption is not for the faint of heart because we had a 800 number and we, I had a, a, a website. I built it all myself. I vetted every single call. We had four or five, you know, oh, this is going to work. And then they fell through. Um, and one of them right before Nathan came along was extremely devastating. Yeah. Um, we had actually paid the birth parent legal fees and it was in the winter and they had no place to live. And in every state has different adoption laws. And in Maryland, where we were living at the time, you cannot pay for anything but medical and legal. And they needed a place to stay. And we kept telling them we can't do this. It's against the law. And of course, we thought, how can we make this work? right? But our lawyer was like, do not touch this. Um, And they got into the library and figured out, oh, New York. Laws will allow adoptive parents to pay for everything. So they got online, found a lawyer in New York, and drove up there. And so our lawyer called and said, I have never had this happen before. Um, And within days, this woman in my Sunday school class said, I need a birth mother letter from you. And I was like, seriously, I just need to heal from this one. And um, within two days of the birth mother letter going to my friend, this young woman contacted us and said, "I've been all over your website. I think that that I have your son." And I'm like, you know, and the idea that someone would give—I know what he means to me, and I didn't birth him, um, and I can't imagine how someone must trust me. I can't imagine what it's like to do that. It is the most selfless act. In the world I have the utmost respect for all birth parents Um, and to think that someone would entrust their child their flesh and blood into my care forever (laughs) it is extremely humbling and so I am a supporter of different adoption uh, charities Uh, together we rise is one of my favorites and um, we only have one. Um, part of that is because we Nathan didn't arrive till I was 42. So this is it, a big family was probably not in the works for us. But um, yeah, it it has it made us a family, and um, it, it was extremely humbling. How about you?
1: Yeah, <clears throat> it was. You you explain things so well, Andrea. <laughs> Honestly, just wrapping it up. I, Like, it was so eloquent the way you described your reverence for adoption. It's, I don't think I could say it any better. I think it was an interesting process, a long process for us over a couple years. Um, Felt long, but it was the same way, like, um, Rosie's birth mother, she's just a superstar. I mean, Mm. she desired us to raise Rosie when we met her when she was eight months pregnant with Rosie. Mm. And she was so sure of it. She was so sure. I mean, she was counseling us on being a parent. She already had a child already. Mm. And she's so young, she's like 21. And uh she was just like, I'm so sure about you guys. This is it. this is what I want to do. And you know, like you said in different states, it's different, especially in we had an we have an open adoption and mm you know, they, they have a certain amount of time, which they can go back from the legal agreement after the birth. And, uh, she never wavered. I mean, she was just like set on it hardcore. Mm. And I always just think there's just something special about a human that would place their child for an adoption forever with someone else. The Mm. selflessness of it always, many ways just broke me thinking about it. Yeah. It's, uh, I can't imagine how hard that would be to do, but to have the courage and the strength. I think it's very courageous, very, a lot of strength. And there's a lot of humility behind it because how many people say, I can't do this? I don't, I don't, I can't provide something good. They just end up doing stuff, even if it's not a good situation. Mm. And to have that amount of strength to do that and in our situation, you know, Rosie's birth mom, everybody was against her. Her family did not want this. No, everybody said no. She was the only one that said yes for wow. it, you know. And she's, she's just amazing. So I love talking about adoption because I think <laughs> more people should consider it. Should They should consider. You will love that child regardless of whether you it is biological or not. You will have incredibly strong feelings. Towards and that and child. you know,
0: pe- people don't, they're always shocked that Nathan is adopted. And here's the other thing is that we, we didn't pick his name. She picked his name. And he was named after her grandfather. And it was never a name that was on our radar. And we looked up when she said his name is Nathan, and we did change his middle name. Um, so his his middle name now reflects my husband's middle name and my father-in-law's name. So it's a third generation. Um, but when we looked it up, Nathan means gift. And so when private adoption, we literally met at Panera in White Marsh, Maryland, right outside of Baltimore. And I called my parents and I said, you have to come up here. from a- I don't know what I'm doing. And so I said, I'm getting a baby tomorrow. And so literally yeah. our first, our first, we have two gotcha days. Our first gotcha day is tomorrow is February 12th. That's the day that he came into our home. Yeah. And I didn't know what I was doing, but she looked at us across the table over a sandwich and said, what will his name be? She knew very well that we had every right because it's going to be a new birth certificate. And ours is not – it's not a fully closed adoption. Um, The agreement is that we send her stuff once a year and that at 18, they can be in touch if if they both want to. But we looked at her and we said, his name is Nathan. And that was the only time she got emotional. And I thought, because she's young. She was 18. And – you know, we were prepared for a birth mother to be a different demographic and all kinds of stuff, but she um she she un, she was unwavering as well. She knew what she wanted and um and now it took 15 months to be finalized. The birth father objected and then left town. So he just wanted to be on record.
1: <laughs> we had the same thing um, almost actually. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean and, it wasn't that long, but it was like a month after the birth there was that and it just, he never showed up to the court hearing for it. So it was. In
0: Maryland, you have to wait 365 days from last point of contact.
1: Wow. See, we we're, were in Nevada. It was very different.
0: <laughs> there were days I had wished, could we have just moved to Virginia? Because Virginia yeah, is like yeah. 10 days. And, um, but, you know, we had to wait. And I will say, the so because of that, there was the fear that we wouldn't bond. There was a fear that I would protect my heart that, you know, what if something happens? But he, he took off. And, um, by the time, uh, the hearing came around for the termination of rights, they had sent letters to all the grandparents to, cause these are young kids to him, to everything was returned to sender. And so we showed up and the clerk said, do you have any expectations this guy's going to show? And we said, we have no idea. And we've never met him. We don't even know what he looks like. And he didn't, of course. And the, oh my gosh, the judge was amazing. She was an adoptive mother as well. And so she said, when you come back in 30 days, I want to do this in my chambers. And she said, cause I want this to be super special. Cause family court, they don't always get to do special fun stuff. Yeah, that's true. They get to do adoptions, but a lot of family court is not happy. And, um, so it turned out to be a really special day when, so Cinco de Mayo is our second.
1: Nice. <laughs> that's
0: our second. I know. So it's like, we have a Cinco de Mayo and we get to have, uh, quesadillas and nachos and all that kind of stuff for second gotcha day. But, um, Anyway, so that's, yeah, that's our other story. But all that to say, I want to live out my principles and my personal growth in front of my son so that he knows, number one, how to live. Number two, women can do anything. Number three, his mom is awesome. (laughs) And (laughs) number four, that he can do anything, right? That he can actually live this way and he can actually be that. So I apologize a lot. I admit I'm wrong a lot and we have not ever hid from him that he was adopted. It's always been a special thing. And, um, he, he doesn't, he doesn't question it much, but he's only, he's only 12. I'm sure we'll have more and more conversations yeah. as he gets older. So
1: it's just, it's just awesome. Uh, it's, it's really incredible. My, we've made it very special for my daughter and she loves it. She actually, she has a sense of pride about mm. it and she's Good. just really excited. And I think it's, it's very important um, and she's intentional about it. She has intentional <laughs> optimism about adoption. And although she's only nine, she goes, I would love to adopt a child when I get older and stuff. And the fact that she's already talking about it in that way means that hopefully that we've done a decent job in relaying. How it's special it is, yeah. for, you know. Um, good, which is great. And this has been special, Andrea. This is just a a winding conversation of goodness of, <laughs> of just I different agree. things, you know, just different life stories, which is important. Cool, it's so, good. Yeah, I really appreciate you being on, and I think this has a lot of weight to it. A lot of different things, a lot of deep, uh, emotional fun, and mm-hmm. uh, hopefully, life lesson. Based conversation, yeah. So, thank you for being on, and I look forward to others checking this out.
0: Thank you very much, um, and I look forward to hearing more about what you do. And uh, now that we're connected, um, yep. I'm very uh, curious to learn more and to um, to to be involved in other things that maybe you participate in. So, this yeah, has been really. That would be great. This has been. This has been uplifting.
1: That's good. That's a good way to put it. That's awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, Andrea. We'll be in touch.
0: Okay. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dr. D's Social Network. Make sure you listen to future episodes. Also, please make sure to rate and review My Dad's Show on Apple Podcasts in the rate and review section. Thanks, everyone.